My name is Peter. I live here in Copenhagen, Denmark, and uh, I work uh, as a body piercer in a local studio here in Copenhagen. Peter doesn't just poke holes in other people. He has a few piercings of his own. So maybe now you're thinking uh, an earring, a nose ring, something like that. But this guy, this guy has gone in a whole other direction. My first was um, a magnet in the side of my hand. And my second is called a Vivo key. It's it's a, a, like the size of a big rice grain. And it has my phone number information and social media links and whatnot on it. So you can scan it with your phone and it'll have links for my Instagram and my Facebook and my email address and whatnot. A lot of the stuff most people would keep in their wallet or the back of their jeans, Peter's got hiding under his skin. I've got a few different implants, the payment chip, I got some magnets installed. I've got a business card chip implant and door lock keys and whatnot. So I think a total of five, six implants at the moment, looking to get more. If this setup sounds like one of those look what those crazy kids are doing pieces you see on the news every now and then, that's because it sort of is. Peter's part of a small but growing group of mostly young people who've ditched a lot of the analog ways of doing basic daily tasks one of which is paying for stuff. Now, the cool-sounding part of going cashless is getting these weird Neuromancer-style implants. But none of this stuff would be possible if there wasn't an infrastructure to support it. And in some parts of the world, there is. Roughly 88% of all payments in Denmark are now digital. You use a card, a phone, a wristband, whatever. Among the gaggle of countries that are leading the charge to go cashless, Denmark isn't even the furthest ahead. In Sweden, for example, the government has been running a mobile banking app that's a way to pay for stuff, but also a recognized form of ID, similar to a passport. The country has also been testing an e-currency, this thing called an e-krona. This is the sort of stuff that's allowing folks like Peter to ditch cash altogether, even if a lot of people still have deep reservations about the whole thing. I'm met by skepticism. It's a lot of this how could you do this and aren't you afraid that this and this might happen so that's the other side of it of course the surprise but also the skepticism of how do i trust technology this much so that's what the future is supposed to look like this world where everything's digital and we pay for stuff by sweeping our hand in front of a scanner or raising an eyebrow or whatever and in some places it's mostly possible and for some people it mostly works but not everywhere and certainly not everyone And that's what this episode is about. If we're really ditching cash, who gets left behind? Who gets to live in a world of implants and mobile apps and e-currency? And who has to make do with paper money because none of the infrastructure that supports all that other stuff is available to them? How possible is a cashless world? And how fair? I'm Omar Lakad, and this is Without. In 2022, a Gallup survey found that only about 13% of adults in the U.S. say they use cash for most purchases. It was a steep drop, even from just five years earlier. But if you look more closely at the data, it's not an even 13%. In fact, going cashless turns out to be a pretty telling proxy for most of the political, racial, and class divisions in this country. Republicans are much less supportive of a cashless society than Democrats, for example. 
The survey also found that 22% of lower-income adults mostly use cash, compared to just 5% of Americans who make more than hundred grand a year. Basically, if you're white and make a lot of money, you're most likely to have left cash behind. Intuitively, that sort of makes sense. Banking has always come with hurdles that, if you use cash, you really didn't have to think about. Minimum balances, branch locations, fees. As with a lot of life, being poor can make banking really expensive. But if you happen to belong to certain minority groups, there's also another barrier lurking. One that, unless you've experienced it firsthand, might be something you never think about. When we come back, we'll look at what happens when the cashless world meets the security state. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. The other day, I tried to deposit a check in Canadian dollars into my American account. So the teller stamps the check with the conversion into U.S. dollars. But then a few days later, I get this note saying the bank had rejected the check because it considered the stamp an alteration. And also, I was getting charged five bucks. If you do any banking at all, you've probably experienced some version of this sort of stuff. But for some people, these issues go way beyond occasional frustrations. I have had some issues with my business account that I've never quite understood, where there was some glitches with my banking for months and months, but it was, in the end, resolved with no explanation of what happened. That's Dalia Mugahid. When she first experienced problems with her account, she didn't think much of it. And anyway, there wasn't much she could do. Then, years later, she started hearing from other people who were having similar issues, and a pattern started to emerge. In this case, it was actually impacted individuals who came to us and said, we are having this issue with banking while Muslim. Dahlia is director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, an organization that focuses on issues of concern to American Muslims. We've had our bank accounts closed repeatedly. We've been deplatformed repeatedly over and over again with no explanation, with no way of challenging the decision, with no recourse. This is a huge challenge, and we want you to research it. We want to see if this is really systemic or if it really is true that this is just a one-off thing or it's just happening to some of us and not others. So Delia did what a researcher does. She started asking questions. What we were trying to understand are essentially two things. Was there a disparity in banking issues between 
Muslims and Americans of other faiths and no faiths, was there really a, a significant difference or are Muslims just complaining more than other people? And then number two, what was the nature of the issue when it occurred? How was it manifesting? Dahlia created a survey and worked with a company that puts together a random group of respondents. They surveyed Muslim Americans, people of other faiths, and the general public. And the results, they weren't subtle. The disparity was very clear, very significant, where you had more than a quarter of Muslim Americans reporting some kind of problem when they were banking. And that compared to, you know, around 10% of the general public. When you really dig into it, it's not just that it's more often, but it's the type of problem was very different. What set Muslim Americans apart was that they were far more likely to also have issues with business accounts and with nonprofit accounts. So the, the problems weren't just more frequent among Muslims, but their, the nature of the issues with their banking were more around, you know, institutional issues, not just individual issues, where your business was now being targeted or your nonprofit was now deplatformed. And why that's important to understand is it's not just about individual discrimination, but now you're actually disenfranchising a community when you are targeting businesses and nonprofits that either employ or serve many, many more people than just the individual that experienced the problem. And so you're impacting many, many more lives and infringing on many, many more people's rights. It may not be the sexiest issue, politically speaking, a minority group having trouble with their bank accounts. But this is the sort of thing that, unresolved, becomes just a daily feature of life in a world without cash. A thing some people have to deal with constantly, while others never have to think about at all. I think that a cashless society where nothing changes will result in a much worse situation for targeted minority groups. I, I did want to add that the percentage of Black Americans overall and Latino Americans overall who have issues while banking is similar to Muslims as a group. When banks are given the power to deplatform and to discriminate with impunity against a community, it's never going to end with that community. So unless we find a solution to this problem, it can impact many, many other people. So what does it look like when a cashless system does actually try to cater to people who aren't rich, who can't get the bank manager to return a call? After the break, we go to Kenya to find out. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back. In the early 2000s, a pretty revolutionary way of moving money arrived in Kenya. We were just talking with my friend about her joining boarding school and the dad sending money via mobile. And she was like, oh, you're talking about M-Pesa. That's Emma Mwanza, who lives and studies in Nairobi. And the thing she's talking about, M-Pesa, is basically a virtual bank account. But for people who can't get a real bank account, it lives on your phone and it... You know what? I'm not doing a great job of explaining this thing. Let's go back to Emma. The idea behind M-Pesa is that um, people who are unbanked can actually be able to transact money. So what happens is if I want to send money to my mom and I have cash money... I will go to an M-Pesa outlet that's like a vendor shop that's certified by Safaricom, which is a mobile network behind M-Pesa. And I'm going to tell the person there, I want to have you deposit this amount of money on my phone. And then what they do is they ask for your details, like your national identity number, your SIM card number, and then they ask you how much money you'd like them to deposit on your M-Pesa account, and then they do the transaction. So that's how it started out. A way for people to send money to one another without going through all the hassle of a traditional bank and with lower transaction fees. But since then, M-Pesa has grown into a kind of economic behemoth. It's good for online shopping, real-life shopping, it's a makeshift credit card, and it has helped transform how the country moves money. Roughly 72% of the Kenyan population now uses digital payments. All you really need is a SIM card. So it makes it possible for the people who don't have smartphones to still be able to use this application. I think it was totally motivated by the fact that a big percentage of the population, especially at the time when it was just launched, were totally unbanked. And also, I hate to say it, but Kenya is a developing country. At the time, some places were still getting access to electricity and other important things that make banking possible. But almost every other person has a phone. Even though the use of M-Pesa is widespread in Kenya, it's had a hard time taking off in neighboring countries. One of the challenges we see with societies pivoting to cashless societies is that there's still a significant segment of the society that does not have access or is unable to access some of these digital alternatives because they're not accepted everywhere. They can't be used by everywhere. All the infrastructure doesn't exist you know, where they are. That's Raliat Sonomu. She's the vice president of the Middle East and Africa program at Axion, an organization whose mission is financial inclusion for the most marginalized. She attributes the success of M-Pesa in Kenya to a number of things. First and foremost, there was a clear need for the service. But the second reason 
is that M-Pesa has a whole ecosystem that supports its widespread use. Merchants, you know, accept it. Individuals can use those forms of payments to do their normal things and they don't need to go out of their way to do it. Raliat herself uses M-Pesa when she's in Kenya. But in Nigeria, where she's based, M-Pesa isn't that widely used. That's despite the fact that, a few years ago, the Nigerian Central Bank also tried to encourage going cashless. In Nigeria, I think we just went through uh, a great example of how not to do it. Like in Sweden, the central bank started by introducing a digital version of the country's standard currency, the e-Naira. But the problem is, the infrastructure wasn't well-developed yet, so the system was plagued with glitches. Transactions not going through, that sort of thing. As a result, not too many people or institutions in Nigeria were all that interested in using it. The central bank then decided that they would force the issue. And so they changed the format and the some of the high-level notes. And so people, uh, they asked folks to submit or um, take in their old cash um, into the, the central bank or to their banks. And the intention then was that, or the thinking on the part of many people was, oh, we would get new cash, right, this new format um, to spend. That didn't happen. Instead, what the central bank did was actually restrict the production and the circulation of cash, old or new. And at the same time, then you had financial institutions. So obviously, you know, many people moved then to trying to do digital transactions, digital payments. But the bank's infrastructure could not support this. So that created a lot of pain, uh, riots in some cases where people couldn't get access to their money, couldn't spend money. Um, People were, you know, starving, especially daily workers who relied on a daily income to then meet their needs. They didn't get this daily income in formats that they could easily use and the alternative digital transactions and certainly ENARA were not viable in in the true sense of the word. Raliat says there are a few key elements to consider when trying to create digital alternatives to cash that benefit everyone, including the most marginalized. First, there must be a clear need for the service. But beyond that, It has to be affordable and easily accessible. It's pointless building a cashless system if you can't use it to pay your bills and receive government benefits and all the other daily transactions people use cash for. One of the things we found at Axion is just because people have mobile phones or even, you know, smartphones doesn't mean that they want to use it for financial services. It doesn't mean that they trust um, their financial services to be done using the phone. And so those are the kinds of, you know, trust issues and barriers that have to be addressed. And of course, the way in which you do it, you know, accounts for a lot. While not all cashless models work everywhere, it seems that the most successful ones adapt to fulfill an existing need. Going cashless doesn't have to mean leaving the most vulnerable behind. We need to design for all the different sub-segments, and it needs to be intentional. It can't be by happenstance, and it can't happen, I think, over time. I think that intention or the intentionality has to be there from day one. Last but not the least, I think it's also about making it affordable. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. Our senior producer is Emil Klein. Our producer is Lashik Lotus-Lee. And our associate producer is Fendel Fulton. With additional reporting from Jordan Allen and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. 
and our research is by Sarah Mathis and Zoe Gruskin. 